Are you ready to start living richer? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Live Richer podcast, hosted by Jamie Catmull, a podcast created for people to challenge and manage their ideas of wealth, culture, and money across the world, bringing you the best personal finance advice to make more, save more, and live richer. Now, here's your host, Jamie Catmull. Hey everyone, welcome to the Live Richer podcast. Tax season is here, and like me and many other Americans, this time is all about gathering all the proper documentation to file our taxes before the big deadline. Many of the rules have changed when it comes to filing your taxes this year, whether it's stocks, investments, crypto, or peer-to-peer payments. That's why I invited the VP of Operations at Tax Act, Mark Yeager, to explain the ins and outs of how to file your taxes this year so we can all avoid those nasty penalties. Mark, thanks for joining the podcast today. So how are you doing, Mark? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful. We're nearing uh, the end of tax season here, and I can't complain. I love talking taxes overall. You know, when I have guests come on my show, I'm always curious about their own personal stories when it comes to the subject matter we're talking about. And since we're talking about taxes and investments... I was curious to hear if you have any personal stories when it comes to taxes and investments. Yeah, to talk about taxes in general, taxes is pretty broad, right? Not not just the taxes that you file uh, each and every tax season. A story I had actually recently, for the first time, I took my kids down to the Bahamas in the Atlantis area. My kid was watching YouTube all the time and says, hey, look, there's this big slide that you get to go down and and go real fast on, and I really want to do that. So it's like, sure, let, let's do this. Let, let's have some fun. It's been a while since we've we've done something like this. Uh, anyway, you get down there, and it's a really nice area, a beautiful resort, uh, all that. It was it was really great. Uh, but then you find uh, everything that you purchased down there has some sort of tax on it, right? Yeah. Uh, and and it just reminded me. I think they called it a value added tax of, of like ten percent on everything you purchased. And so it just reminded me, right? Like, hey, pretty much everything we buy nowadays, everything that we do has some sort of tax on it. Uh, I'm just trying to think in my head if there was ever, ever anything uh, on a day-to-day basis that didn't involve taxes at some point uh, through a purchase or something along those lines in my life. So yeah, that Atlantis, uh, Bahamas area, beautiful. Just uh, yes, lots of taxes involved uh, when you go down there as well. You know, don't you hate it when you go to those resorts and they tell you it's going to be one price and then you're like, you look at the bill or whatever, you're like, well, what, what are these charges? And they're like, Value-added tax. <laughs> yeah, hospitality tax, value-added tax. Yes, there's there's all kinds of fees and taxes that audit on there. And I guess you're right. That's how it is when it comes to taxes in general. We're being taxed on everything we do, and especially our investments. When it comes to investments and getting taxed on them, what are some investments that we need to be aware of and making sure that we're yeah. paying those taxes? Yeah, that's right. So some of the investments overall, right? You, you think about your 401k plan overall. That's an example uh, of what we call a tax-advantaged account. So and in that situation, right, you, you think about just the different stocks that you that you have in your plan overall, whether you have a personal brokerage account, which isn't a tax-advantaged account. But really, all those investments that you make, uh, whether it's day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, uh, year-to-year, right? There, there's always some impact as it relates to what you can and cannot do from a tax perspective on that. So pretty much I look at it, anything you purchase, uh, whether it's it's uh, stock in some company, whether it's uh, some mutual fund you purchased, whether it's a boat, 
uh, that you end up buying that you could deem an investment. You know, a lot of people deem their house uh, as an investment as well that grows over time. Uh, there's taxes and everything that you purchase. So it's just good to understand just what those taxes are, what that means for your financial well-being, and really what you're looking to do in your life overall. So what's the difference between a taxable and a non-taxable account? Yeah, that's a great question, Jamie. So a, a taxable account would be your example of like a brokerage account. Maybe think through Morgan Stanley, Robinhood, that type of place where you just invest some dollars, you decide that you want to invest in Google stock or Apple stock or something along those lines, and then you have flexibility to sell and, and trade that stock really whenever you want. There is no real tax advantage to it, meaning that if I put in $5,000 into that uh, account, right, it, it's tax, it's after-tax money. You've already paid tax on that money overall. There is no tax benefit really when you put your money into an account like that. Whereas a tax-advantaged account, which again is like your 401k, you may have money withheld from your paycheck uh, every week, every two weeks, whatever it may be, that comes out tax-free, that gets contributed to your 401k. So you're really investing more money because you don't have to pay taxes uh, on that money when you go to file your taxes each year. Another example could be like a Roth account where, hey, I'm putting in after-tax money overall, but the dividends, the, the money that that uh, account earns is going to be tax-free as it's earning. And then obviously when you take a distribution from it later on, it will be tax-free at that point as well. So tax advantage account really comes down to there's some sort of tax advantage. I know that's kind of a cliche answer there as it relates to an example of a 401k or a Roth, whereas your brokerage account, it's really just using after-tax dollars. You pay taxes on it when you go to sell the stock overall. So that's why so many personal finance experts I have come on all the time always say, open a Roth IRA, do things like that. The 401k is because of the tax advantage on those counts. So you yes, never pay yeah, taxes on those, just to be clear. Is that right, Mark? It, as a Roth? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, if, if you, 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 you pay the taxes right away, in hopes that, right, when you go to sell or take a distribution from your Roth IRA, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, whatever it may be, that you don't pay taxes on it. I'll always preface that Congress could change something, right? We wouldn't want that to happen, but Congress could always change something that could change the rules around that. But as it stands today, right, that's the benefit is you can pay the taxes now. When your earnings go up, you could avoid paying those taxes at a higher tax rate. And then the difference just... So we get it exactly right here. So, but then if I have a brokerage account, when I pull it out, I'm taxed on whatever the value of that stock is when I cash out on it. Yes, that's right. So if you're caught, that, then it comes down to your cost basis in the stock and then what you sold the stock for as the sales price. That difference is your gain in the stock. And then if you invest in certain stocks, like I'll just throw out John Deere, who provides dividends, those dividends that you earn typically will have to be paid each and every year that you earn the dividend. Okay, so some of them, like your your uh, your tax uh, advantaged account, it just keeps purchasing more stock in that particular company or in your fund uh, that you don't have to pay taxes on it. But if you're just usually buying stock in John Deere and then they pay you a dividend quarterly, that dividend will come as a 1099 div in the mail to you each and every year, and you have to pay taxes on it that specific tax year. So what about people who did crypto? Are they having to pay taxes on that, or how did that work? Yeah, crypto, you should be. Yes, we should be. So if you're, if you're buying and particularly selling crypto at a gain, then you should be reporting it on what's called a Schedule D for capital gains or losses on your tax return each year. Now, 
The IRS is working through some rules for future tax seasons to try to get crypto transactions reported on a new form. They're going to call it, I think, the 1099DA for digital assets. But for now, being they don't really have that form, you may have your brokerage in a way that's doing the crypto still give you a 1099B. If you don't get any kind of sale of the crypto overall, you know, you should still keep track of those records individually. And then if you have a sale that leads to a gain, you should be reporting that gain uh, on your taxes, as well as a loss, right? If you have a loss as well, you should be reporting that loss on your taxes too. So what is, you know, a lot of people use crypto as money. I've had, I know people that do that or tried to even pay me in crypto. Here they had money. Do they count that as, or if someone paid me in crypto, do I count that as like income? Like regular money? Yeah, I mean, I know, like you said, when you sell it, but I never sold it, but I was using it in transactions like money. Do they look at my crypto account? You know what I'm getting at, Mark? Yeah, it, it's very difficult when it gets treated or, or used on a day-to-day basis, yeah. Jamie, like you're kind of mentioning. Really at that point, imagine you're just selling or trading stocks constantly, right? So you have to understand the value of the crypto that you received overall on the day you received it. And then now you kind of have this holding in this crypto because the value of it may change. And I'm just throwing out some numbers. At the time, the value of it was, uh, let's just say $5,000. And then now it's gone up to $6,000. So yes, you may have received or you have this kind of gross proceeds. Your basis is either zero or you report it as income, kind of $5,000 to get to that basis amount. And then now the gain on your crypto needs to be reported as extra money in a way when you go to sell it or hand it away kind of in a way uh, in, in uh, future days or future weeks or future years. So crypto is actually very complicated when it comes to taxes. Very, especially if you're doing something on a day-to-day basis, right? If, if you're just trading it four times a year, eight times a year, maybe it's not that big of a deal. But yeah, if you're using it for value of goods, if people are using it to buy pizza yeah. or, or whatever it may be, that it makes it more difficult overall. Yes. So wh- what would you suggest somebody who maybe has been doing that, using their crypto on a daily basis, they had invested crypto as well, how should they be filing their taxes this year? Yeah. It, so it's going to depend on how comfortable they are and how detailed they are as it relates to those records overall, right? So if you're less comfortable doing your taxes, there's options out there where you could find a good tax professional that helps you walk through those situations, right? No matter what happens, you really should be keeping detailed records, right? It's going to make it easier not only for yourself if you do it yourself, or for the tax professional who has to try to figure out what you were doing this year, JV, uh, <laughs> overall, or really last year, I guess, at this point. But at the end of the day, those detailed records matter. And then it just comes down to your time, right? If you have time, great. Like, it, it's fun. I, I, for me personally, I love doing it, right? It just lets me have a, this deep insight into kind of what's going on in my financial situation each year. But, you know, everybody has their own things going on in their life. And, and having a tax professional do it as well is an option as well. Yeah, no, there's because people, a lot of more people are getting audited all the time. So is, would you suggest with this happening and we're having more IRS agents than ever before to make sure you do your taxes right? Maybe get it looked over by an agent or someone who's an actual person when it comes to their taxes? Yeah, yes. I mean, if that, it just comes down to comfortability and time uh, on that one, Jamie. So obviously, you know, the IRS, they got more funding this last year. They mentioned they're not going to audit individuals under $400,000 or less any more than they would have in the past, which was very, 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 very low. I, I don't think I could use the word very uh, enough in this situation, 
But nonetheless, right, it's important to keep those records. If you're onshore, it really comes down to your comfortability and your confidence. If you're not confident in what you have written on your taxes or what you've done on your taxes, 100%, you should have somebody look at them. I don't know if it's a family or friend that also is in a similar boat. If it's a, a tax professional, it just comes down to where you're at and kind of what you can afford as it relates to having somebody take a look at it. Yeah, the reason I bring that up is because I've known people who were bartenders, waitresses, a lot of people who did where they got tips, hairdressers that got audited in the last two years. And I know it was extremely difficult for them because of the way they did business. Because, you know, they do the tips. It's hard to track when you're getting your tips as a hairdresser. Maybe people gave you cash and things like that. And I know they found that very difficult as independent contractor type jobs. So Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. When when you start getting out of the normal framework of being an employee that just gets paid by your employer and, and we have this new kind of I don't know if you want to call it society in a way now where yeah you could be paid through tips, you could get crypto, maybe somebody gives some sort of stock. There's just all types of different ways of these types of investments, transactions, money just kind of rolling around that makes it difficult, not only on you and I, Jamie, but it really makes it difficult on the IRS to understand what's going on here. That's what I'm saying. I don't even know how people can track money sometimes because you get, like you, I said, you can get paid so many different ways and to be meticulous enough to actually write it all down, keep track of it is very hard sometimes. And so that's why I had you come on here, Mark, so you can help us to know so we don't get in trouble. And if we do get audited, it's not a big deal when it comes to paying our taxes. Like we've talked about when it comes to investments, what are some of the rates that people are paying when it comes to their stocks and being taxed on them? Yeah. So there's typically the way I look at it, there's three different tax rates. Well, more than that, there's three different tax rates on long-term capital gains. Okay. So let me let me uh, circle back there and explain what long-term capital gains are on stock. So a long-term gain is really any asset, any investment that you have held longer than one year, right? There is a tax advantage to be able to hold on to something more than one year in our tax code. So in that situation, there's certain income levels. I don't have those income levels in front of me, but based on your income level and filing status, you could get potentially a 0% tax rate, uh, meaning that if you made $10,000 on the sale of stock that you've held more than a year and your normal income for a year, let's just say is $60,000 or, or, or $40,000, you could pay zero, no tax, no tax on that gain overall. Like that's great. A majority of individuals are going to fall into this 15% capital gain rate. So that's a lower capital gain rate than you may pay on other ordinary income overall for a long-term capital gain. And then for those high income earners, they're going to fall in this 20% range. So there's a, there's a very clear tax advantage for investments for individuals that hold those investments over a year. Now, the short-term capital gains is when you hold it for less than a year. There is no special tax rate for that, just like your W-2 wages, just like uh, you know other income that you might earn throughout the year from the sale of uh, personal property and other things. That will fall as ordinary tax rates. So whatever your normal tax rate is, for instance, on your W-2 income, will be the same tax rate that will follow you on your short-term capital gains overall. When I hear you talking and saying all these things, I'm like, this is so complicated. I don't know how anyone could know all these things, an average person. But that's why we have people like you here to help us and to give us some guidelines when it comes to 
how we should be paying our taxes and what's the best options for us. Like right, what you're just talking about, to me, there's benefit of holding on to something for a year, like you said, if you're wanting to pay less taxes on it. So I think that's a great thing to know. And what if I got it as a gift, like an NFT as a gift from someone who would pay the taxes on that? Yeah. So typically the person that's going to pay the taxes on it, it's end up going to be both. And I'm going to kind of slow down when I say this overall. So the person giving the gift. So, so I am going to give you stock, Jamie, or, okay. or an NFT uh, as it relates to this. Since that's a gift, each individual can contribute. Uh, it's up to like $16,000 in terms of this gift tax threshold or this gift tax threshold amount that you can do each and every year without having to file a gift tax return. So if that value is over $16,000, me as the gifter of the stock or NFT to you would need to file a gift tax return with the IRS because you have this huge number of about $15 million that you can give away in your income, your assets to people in a lifetime. So up to $15 million of all your assets can be given away excluding the yearly income amount. So I'm going to throw out that $16,000 for now. So you have to file a gift tax return to report that to the IRS, to report that amount that goes against your lifetime gift contribution amount of $15 million. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop there real quick because I just want to make sure that's understood by you, that there is something you have to do as the gift or to the giftee if that amount exceeds $16,000. If it doesn't exceed $16,000, it just falls under the annual gift tax exclusion amount. You don't have to do anything about it. So that side of it, Jamie, that the other side, meaning now you're getting it. So you take whatever my cost basis was in that investment. All right. So I'll, maybe I will keep it simple with the stock and say, I buy Google stock at $1,000 back in 2018. And in 2022, I give that stock to you. Okay, on uh, August 1st of, of okay. 2022. Now that stock's worth $3,000. So you take the stock, you inherit my cost basis of $1,000 that I purchased it for back in 2018. So then when Jamie, whenever you decide to sell a stock, if you sell a stock in 2022, maybe you sell it in 2025, 2030, whenever it happens, you will pay taxes on the gain of that stock at the $1,000 cost basis threshold no matter where you end up selling the stock at. Okay, that makes sense. Now, what if I inherited it? Big difference. Okay, that's what I Big was just difference. thinking. There's a difference on your tax rate. So that's why some people gift, before you get into this, some people gift it before they die instead of having their family inherit it. Is there a tax reason for that? I heard there was because their family members will pay less taxes if they don't inherit it after they die, if they gift it to them before they die. Is this true? Well, it could be where their tax rate's at. Maybe their family member's in a higher tax bracket at the time so they can pay taxes at a lower amount and then get under that $15 million gift tax lifetime exclusion thing that we talked about earlier. At the end of the day, when, when you, typically when you're inheriting something, you take the stepped-up basis uh, of the property. So in that situation that I go back to, if I purchased that stock at $1,000, that's mm -hmm. my original cost basis back in 2018, and then it's worth $3,000 in 2022, and I pass away and, and you take that on as an inheritance, usually you then take the stepped-up basis of $3,000 as your cost basis in that property versus just a normal gift, you would stay down at the $1,000 range. So 
it's kind of a double play. It just depends on what makes more sense from uh, my tax bracket versus your tax bracket. And if I'm in a much lower tax bracket, it may make sense for me to sell it and then you kind of get it gifted to you uh-huh. versus, hey, you're in a lower tax bracket. I'm in a much higher tax bracket. It may make sense that when I pass away, you inherit that and pay it at a lower tax rate. It's Anything with taxes is a gray area. Anything requires uh, understanding each person's kind of tax financial life and, and where they're at and understanding what the best benefit is there. And isn't there a different rate are there state rates when it comes to inheritance taxes? Yeah, each state's going to be different. Of course, I don't have uh, the, the details on each uh, state yeah. uh, overall, but we have an internal saying as it relates to the states that, you know, the dots, the candy? Yeah. Uh, the D-O-T-S. So we always say depends on the state for that abbreviation. Each state just does different things as it relates to taxes. So it makes it difficult to try to understand uh, each tax laws for each state uh, in, in a holistic uh, view. It's very interesting. It's so complicated. That's what I, when I'm like talking to you, I'm like, this is more complicated than I thought, especially that crypto business. I didn't even think about it till we got on this call right now doing this podcast, thinking about crypto and how complicated that could be when it comes to taxes and making sure that you're paying the right amount so you don't get in trouble when it comes to it. Yeah. And and there's this weird rule uh, out there that maybe people do or do not know about. It's called these wash sale rules. So the wash sale rules basically it prevents you from taking a loss on a sale if you jump right back into that investment within 30 days. So for instance, if I sell Google stock on August 1st and I have a loss of $1,000 and I try jumping back and buying that same stock within two days or, or really within that 30-day window, the IRS says you can't take that loss anymore. So that's this rule of wash sales. They just, they don't want people taking these losses right away to reduce their income and then buying right back into that security, hoping that the, the security pops up. So you, you get to take this double benefit of your loss on your taxes. And then now you got this gain in the stock overall. So that, that's part of the reason why they created it. But for crypto, Jamie, that was, this is where I was going with it. Crypto doesn't have that rule. Crypto right now, the IRS has not prevented this from being an issue where if you have crypto, and, and we know crypto has gone down uh, kind of in this last year overall, right? People could actually sell their crypto and buy back in an hour later, the next day, two days, and they can get that loss on their tax return to help lower their income. And they're right back into the security because maybe they want to be uh, in crypto uh, right away. So it's kind of this play of you can sell it right away and buy back in right away just to kind of lock in your losses. And then you're back into your crypto just as an investment overall. So there is a unique loophole for crypto right now that is not there for a lot of other investments that we have right now. That's very interesting, actually. I did not know that. So that's a good tip for anybody listening that um, has crypto, by the way. <laughs> he just gave yeah, you the could, nugget it, there. They you... could close in two months <laughs> or a year, but uh, for now, it's something that's available. So what are some things people can do to avoid capital gains taxes on their taxes or investments? You, you may have, if you have capital gains, you have a stock that you sold that did really well, right? Congratulations, right? You just made good money on the growth of this stock that ultimately happened, but now you got to pay capital gains taxes on it. But maybe you have another stock out there that is just doing really poorly. So it's an option there that you kind of figure out where you think you're going to fall from a tax standpoint on your taxes this year. So you decide that you're going to sell this kind of uh, losing stock in a way, the stock that's not performing as well for you. 
just to prevent having to pay taxes on that good performing stock. So for instance, right, let's just say I sell my Google stock. I made $10,000. It, it grew by $10,000. So now on my taxes, I'm going to have to pay taxes on $10,000 of the gain that I just sold on my Google stock. Maybe I don't want to do that. And I realized that I had this other stock out here that didn't do as well. Then I'm down, let's just say $5,000. So you may make a decision that says, all right, I'm going to sell that stock in order to reduce my $10,000 gain by $5,000. So I only pay $5,000 on it overall. That's one option. Another option that people do is they have other businesses. They have other uh, rentals that ultimately could be used to offset your income overall. So for instance, I may own four rental properties. There are special rules around this that I won't get deep into, but I'll just say I'm an active participant. I'm a material participant in terms of actively being involved in these rental properties. And I may decide that I'm going to put a bunch of assets in service. I may buy some refrigerators for the units. I may work on the sidewalk, report the driveway, whatever it is that it may be, that I may have losses from this rental property now for this year that can be used to offset my capital gain income overall. So that's typically what you find could happen in, in terms of, hey, somebody has this good thing going on over here. I have this side hustle business or I have these rental properties that I can ultimately use and, and, and find some things to section 179 or depreciate for a given year to help reduce the income that I earn from that capital gain income. I've seen a lot of people do that. I, that's a great one. I would say those would be my main two to talk about really overall. Those were great. <laughs> I really like them a lot. And then I have a question that we're sitting here talking. Say somebody pays you and it's for doing something for them. They give you cash. Do you need to ask that person, hey, did you count that on your taxes that you gave me that money? Because maybe you aren't going to report it because you're like, oh, it wasn't that big a deal. They paid me maybe 500 bucks for to do that. But then you find out that they, should you ask them, hey, is this something you're reporting on your taxes that you gave me this $500? Because by me not paying taxes on it could get me in trouble. That's what I'm curious about. Yeah, you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to ask that question whatsoever. For you, it's really just matters to what you got. So if you received $500 for some performing, you know, services yeah. or providing some good overall, that's just you. Like, it doesn't matter if that's $5, doesn't matter if it's $500, you know, you should report that for whatever it is that you did. As like income, there's this conversation right. about, hey, is this a hobbyist income? Is this a uh, business income? Like you should report that like you normally do as part of your business. We'll just assume a business for now overall. And then it's on them for whatever they were doing. If that's just like a, a personal expense for them, right? There's probably nothing they need to do overall. But nonetheless, right? You more worry about yourself in that situation. I think that the situation, Jamie, I hear in that from, from you on that one typically will come down to like dependent care is the example maybe that I look at. Some people will say, well, I paid my, I paid this uh, individual or this daycare provider $400 or or $1,000 or whatever it may be to watch my kid for the year. And then you're kind of half wondering, okay, is that daycare provider actually reporting that income? Because maybe you're giving them cash uh, yep. for purposes of watching your kid. Because from your side of it, you want to claim a dependent care credit on your return, but you don't want to put that person in trouble if for some reason they decide not to include that amount as income. You know, I'll, I'll say, right, from a conservative view, or, or when I say conservative view, meaning like what you should do with the IRS, right? You should always worry about what you have overall. If, if you have a, a credit that you can claim because you made those expenses, you should report and get that credit. 
if you receive that income for a business, no matter what the other person's doing, you should report that income for your business. Just always report it. Even if it seems not that big of a deal, $100, you should. Just to yeah, be safe. There's, people will always focus on, well, I got a document from, you know, from this person, whether it's like a 1099K, 1099 NEC, a W-2, a 1099N from the bank, right? There's rules around whether the person needs to actually send you a document. But if you got money, whether you received a document or not, you should still report it on your taxes. Okay, Mark, you just mentioned a new form that I don't know about. Um, what is this new form and will we see it this year? Yeah, this new form is the form 1099K. It's, it's really for the sale of goods or services that you do on platforms like eBay or or Venmo, those types of sites over on Facebook Marketplace, et cetera. The rules changed. It was supposed to be where you were going to get this form in the past if your number of transactions were over 200 and, and the dollar amount was over $20,000. The IRS lowered the threshold to just be over $600. Doesn't matter the number of transactions. And then at the last minute, like right around Christmas, they went back to the 200 transactions, $20,000 threshold amount. So as it relates to the 1099K, the answer will be it depends, right? It's, it's going to matter whether your particular vendor like eBay or one of these other sites ultimately was too far down the process and they need to send you this 1099K form. So you could get it, you could not get it, but I know the rules are coming back for this next year that we're in right now. So meaning that next January, unless Congress or the IRS changes their mind again, these forms will come out in mass to individuals next year. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. I think that's how a lot of people who are doing side hustles, like right now we have a lot of people who do side hustles, doing the different things to make extra cash. Like I said, you people who are stylists, different things. It's hard to know, should I report it or not? And now we all know, just report it. If someone's giving you cash for services, always, always, always just report it on your taxes just to be safe. Yes. Yeah, that's the, the good thing to do. Right. We know and the IRS knows and our congressmen and women know that's not really what's happening out there today. Because, again, as part of that IRS funding that they got, they, they created these new 1099K rules this last year that they ended up holding for a year. But they know that if, if more of these W-2 documents, they call them information returns, if more of these documents go out that the IRS gets, that means better compliance overall. That means individuals will report this type of income on their returns. Whereas if they don't get these types of documents, they're more likely not to report the income on the return. So we know what's happening in the real world as it relates to people getting these documents or reporting this income or not. But at the end of the day, the, the, what you're supposed to be doing is even if, even if you don't get a document, you get $100 for some business work that you did, you should be reporting it on your taxes. Because we need to remember, like you said, everything has a tax on it. So just think like that. We don't live tax-free really anymore. Everything has a tax on it, no matter what you're doing or where you go. Mark, I'm so glad that you came on here today and educated me as much as you have. And there's a question I ask all of my guests, and it is, what does living richer mean to you? Yeah, I, I always look at it as it's really about setting your whole self up. That's socially, that's financially, that's mentally to really maximize the things that you want to do that you're most passionate about on a day to day basis. Right. So it's it's giving yourself the opportunity to do the things that you really want to do because you have more money to do it. 
Thanks, Mark, for that beautiful answer when it comes to what living richer means to you. I know I really appreciated what you said, and I believe my listeners did as well. I also want to thank you for coming on today and sharing all of your great tax advice and answering some of my hard questions that I gave you. I want to also remind everyone, when it comes to your taxes, you need to be careful if you're wanting to avoid penalties. So always go ask an expert. And then one last thing I want all of you to do, and that is to live richer. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you go, we'd love for you to subscribe to our show to catch all of our updates. Also, we want to hear from you. What are your burning questions about money and how to live your best life? Reach us at liveRicherPod at GoBankingRates.com.